Hey folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. It's Ed Fallon here with you, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, so um, it's uh, January 29th, and I'm going to say happy spring, everybody. You know, I, mean, I don't know what it's like in other parts of the country, but here in the upper Midwest, um, it's, uh, it's really warm for this time of the year. 30s, 40s, uh, several days coming up in the 50s. And again, we had, we had real winter. Yes, it was about um, two or three weeks long. I'd say two or three weeks of real winter. And again, real winter, what does that mean? Well, in the upper Midwest or other northern parts of the country, I mean, when I, when I, was a, when I lived in Vermont for a couple of years, we had what was known as January thaw. And I remember the same experience in Wisconsin, Minnesota. January thaw was when, you know, the one time in the month of January for two or three days, maybe five at the very most, the temps got above freezing during the day. And again, usually during the day, the temperature was below freezing. And at night, it would dip to the teens, single digits. And now, I mean, again, we had, we had that polar vortex. It dropped to 20 below at night, a few days. And uh, we got, what, over two feet of snow. What I call real winter. <laughs> and now it's pretty much done. I mean... Today, uh, we're seeing bare ground now. The snow is melting fast. And uh, I don't see anything in the forecast. I could be wrong. Maybe we'll have another blast. But I think if we do have another blast of real winter, it'll be short. It won't, it won't be two or three weeks long. It won't be like it has been historically uh, three months long. Anyway, January thaw. Now, thing of the past. It's no longer a two or three day event. Now it's, a, now it's a, the way it is. Anyway, hey, uh, before I march on, I want to talk, I want to say, well, I want to give a quick shout out to the Des Moines Irish Session. Uh, they provide our bumper music, and uh, I'm, I'm a participant in this uh, fantastic experience of very traditional, uh, very spontaneous Irish music that happens somewhere in the Des Moines metro every Tuesday. Okay, so uh, I want to focus on the five top things that Democrats need to do to become relevant in Iowa specifically, but implicitly across all of rural America. Yeah, what Democrats need to do to hemorrhage the party's continued loss of support, not just in rural communities, but in working class towns as well, and among minority voters. So I got five things to go through here. We're going to start with one, end federal meddling. Now, it's getting worse. The uh, DNC and their equivalents, the DSCC and the DCCC, that's Senate and in-house, they basically have uh, usurped power from state Democratic parties. I saw that back in 2008 when I ran for Congress. Uh, there were promises made to me uh, by groups that were aligned with the issues I was focused on. Uh, and then the heavies weighed in, the establishment Democrats. And they made it clear that even though I was running against a, a Democrat who was pretty much out of step with a lot of things Democrats wanted, they were going to back him because he was part of the establishment. And they were the establishment as well. And uh, I, I just saw all kinds of um, uh, implied or promised support dry up. Anyway, uh, that's my own personal experience. And you know what? It's gotten worse. Um, more recently, the Democratic National Committee orchestrated the collapse of the Iowa caucuses. 
I mean, I, I blame Iowa Democrats for a lot of things, but that one is on the DNC. They forced the, the Democratic Party in Iowa to use an app uh, called the Shadow App. I mean, what, that should have raised some eyebrows right there, right? Uh, that was destined to fail. It had not been tested. It was a new thing. And yeah, it did fail. And I, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure that it failed by design. There was one more way in which the national establishment could move toward killing the Democratic caucuses in Iowa. So anyway, um, beyond that, I mean, look at the, 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 the nationals, the National Democratic Party's track record is pretty bad, not just in Iowa, but elsewhere. But here in Iowa, back in 2016, uh, there were three Democrats running in the Democratic primary to challenge Chuck Grassley in the Senate. But none, none of them were good enough, apparently, for uh, the uh, state, the the, uh, the federal party, the national party. Uh, they ended up picking Patty Judge, who a lot of us thought was a universally bad choice. <laughs> and uh, one of the candidates, Bob Krause, uh, was quoted in a Des Moines Register story saying, quote, if we allow the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee to do this, we might as well go ahead and abolish the primaries and let, let D.C. pick our candidates. Spot on. And again, uh, that's, that's what continues to happen. Um, I, by the way, Judge, by the way, lost by 24 points to Grassley. Then a story in 2019 uh, from uh, in Time magazine. Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the National Democratic Party style seems to be, quote, choose candidates who can stay on the phone all day to call big donors, do very few press events, and then put all their money on television. And, uh, yeah, that's their playbook. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, again, the, I, I would add the one thing that the one thing's missing in that quote, and that's pretty spot on, is that the, the establishment in D.C. also wants to make sure they don't choose candidates who are going to shake the boat, who are going to challenge or upset the status quo in any way. So to that tune here in Iowa as well, back in, uh, was it 2018? Uh, um, the... D.C. endorsed uh, Teresa Greenfield. Again, nothing against her, but there was a four-way primary. Let it play out. Well, she ended up losing by six percentage points to Joni Ernst. Uh, you know, and around the country, uh, <laughs> there was uh, Cal Cunningham. He was a candidate, uh, a primary a Democrat endorsed by the DSCC. Uh, he was selected among other candidates. He was the one, and he ended up losing to uh, Congressman, uh, or sorry, Senator Tom Tillis. So the DSCC has had some victories. Um, <laughs> you're gonna love this one, uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema. So Cinema wins, of course, and she's no longer a Democrat. So <laughs> how did that pay off for you? You know, they. Uh, I just. It's um again. It's also here's a, here's another quote from that Time story by uh this is a uh, Chuck Schumer, the uh, the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, apparently dissuaded J.D. Shulton from running for the U.S. Senate in 2020. Again, Shulton nearly beat Steve King. That is an unprecedented, almost accomplishment. What does Schumer tell Shulton? He said, quote, we don't need a primary. So, I mean, this is, this is appalling. This is, this is the federal government, uh, in this case, the federal party, the Democratic Party, meddling with local affairs. They, they need to just stay the heck out of local politics. Um, and, you know, and now again, well, they've done it again. They just endorsed the candidate against the Republican congressman from Des Moines, Representative Zach Nunn. And again, there's a primary. 
Let the Democrats have their primary. Let them work it out. But no, they've gone ahead and endorsed Lennon Bacom against uh, Melissa Vine. I don't, I don't know either of these candidates, but I, immediately I'm biased against the one the DCCC has endorsed. All right, that's, that's one. Again, stop federal meddling. Second, focus on bread and butter issues, okay? And I know, I know that'll tick off the anti-gluten crowd when I'm talking about bread and probably tick off the vegan crowd that I'm talking about butter. It's a metaphor, though, folks, okay? So um, what, you know, the, the message that, um, the bread and butter issues, the core message that I think Democrats really ought to pay attention to, that I ought to focus on, is what J.D. Shulton is talking about in his weekly blog, You're Probably Getting Screwed. <laughs> uh, and again, establishment Democrats won't do that because we, it would offend their sponsors. I mean, the people that J.D. calls out, the businesses, the corporations, the interests that he calls out you know, are also, they're, they're good at playing the game. They're good at funding the uh, party insiders that um, will then do their bidding. Again, it's worse on the Republican side. I, don't, I get that. But it's pretty bad on the Democratic side, too. So I look at what, uh, what the Democratic leadership here in Iowa is focused on. And um, Jennifer Confer, she's the House minority leader. And again, the smallest minority I've ever seen. Uh, she's, um, she seems to be focusing on abortion and hot-button social issues. Um, she put out a newsletter last week that, uh, that bashes Republicans on those issues. And again, you know, and all that stuff, okay, it's all important, but that's where you want to, you, you want, basically she's taking the bait. And Republicans are doing this stuff. And instead of saying, instead of just like writing it off as, okay, these, 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 uh, this, this, uh, this Republican party is just there to take away your rights and to, and to uh, deny local control. You know, you can say that and then move on to the progressive populist agenda that really resonates with people. You know, and regarding local control, I mean, it's so easy to point out the Republican hypocrisy there. I mean, they, they most recently want to um, ban cities in Iowa from banning conversion therapy, which is proven by, I mean, I think it's proven by all kinds of reputable medical uh, medical in, medical uh, interest that it's 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 really horrible stuff. Of course, Republicans have also banned uh, any any time a city wanted to ban, for example, plastic bags. Nope, can't do that. Uh, cities that we had about what six cities and counties that wanted to uh, require a decent minimum wage. Nope, can't do that anymore. Uh, regulate lawn chemicals. Nope, can't do that. <laughs> so anytime a city does something that rubs against the uh, big donors in the Republican Party, they say no. That's a huge opening for Democrats. You know, so instead of, instead of like focusing on, on all that they're doing, just point out the reality that they are, they are anti-liberty, anti-freedom, and anti-local control. You know, take on, take on the big giants. You know, the, I, as, as J.D. says, they're, they're, they're screwing us. And there's no better example in the upper Midwest than these carbon dioxide pipelines. Which brings me to point three. Democrats, show some courage, please. Uh, I mean, CO2 pipelines, it's a gift, but it's a gift that was squandered. It's too late now. And actually, the most of the voices that are criticizing CO2 pipelines among politicians are Republicans, which is remarkable because it is Republican leadership that is making it happen. Without the support, the quiet support of the governor, Governor Kim Reynolds, these would be going nowhere. But Democrats have failed to even have the slightest, I mean, this would even take just a small amount of courage, but they haven't done it. And they won't do it. They won't do it. And another example recently of the absolute lack of courage, 
the Iowa House vote on House Resolution 101. This is a resolution that is blatantly pro-Zion. I mean, it's, it's every Zionist dream <laughs> to see a resolution like this. Again, I understand the, the, the state governments in the U.S. can do very little about the Israeli-Palestinian war. Uh, but uh, to come out with a statement, I mean, Democrats could have amended it. And what really bothered me, I talked to about six or six people, uh, and half of them were representatives. And they all said, no, we really can't do anything. Well, they lied. They, they I, 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 it really ticks me off because they know they can do something. They could have offered amendments. Well, they were telling me they couldn't do that. Yeah, you can offer amendments to any resolution or bill. I did it. I checked. You can still do it. You can also um, debate it. There wasn't a single, a single element of debate against this horrible resolution. Third, you can call for a vote, an actual vote, not just a voice vote. You can actually get a record vote. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what happened here. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a little bit of speculation, but I, I bet I'm hitting the nail on the head. Democrats don't want to vote on this because they don't want to be held accountable. They, they, they don't have the guts to show where they really stand on it. They didn't want to debate it on the floor. They didn't want to try to amend it. Um, Republicans said, okay, we'll make a deal with you. Uh, if you just, if you just um, don't try to amend it, don't debate it, we won't call for a record roll call either. And that's, I, I'm, I would bet money that is the, um, that is the, uh, that, that's, that's what happened. And again, what, you know, this should be a no-brainer. I mean, even if you're just looking at polling, 80% of Democrats don't like the direction we're going on Gaza. They, they want a ceasefire. Uh, 61% of the entire country, that includes Republicans and independents, want a ceasefire. 90% of the rest of the world or more want a ceasefire. And especially given the news coming out uh, this, this week, um, I mean, the New York Times. I mean, mothers in Gaza are now struggling to find clean water and baby formula for the newborns. Families are selling their possessions to buy sacks of flour. Some people are eating animal feed to survive. And Bob Kitchen of the International Rescue Committee said, quote, it is the most intense hunger crisis I've ever seen. Almost everyone is now hungry. With that information, you still can't offer an amendment to a horrible resolution about Israel. You can't debate it. You can't get a record roll call on it. I mean, the, 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 the lack of courage is absolutely astounding. And to go along with that, bringing me to my fourth point, the lack of transparency. Again, Republicans are terrible on it, and our governor is doing more and more all the time to, to, to close windows of transparency. And we had a reporter who was not allowed to access to the not allowed access to the state capitol. There was a lawsuit; she was allowed in, but <laughs> it took a it took a lawsuit to do that. But yeah, Republicans have been terrible on transparency. But here comes here, again. Here comes our Democratic leader in the House, Jennifer Confirst. She's asked by a reporter how she voted. Again, because there was no record, it was entirely a voice vote. How did she vote? And she said, I'm not going to tell you. Part of the problem is Democrats need to start showing up. There will be more confidence in, in, in the party, in elected officials, if people actually start going to rural communities. Um, and don't go, don't go there to talk. Go there to listen. And folks, uh, check out um, a short documentary called Crossing the Divide. I'm in it. Um, I didn't do it, but uh, I'm in mean, it. It's about building that relationship, and a lot of it involves listening. Okay, finally, the last thing I want to talk about is the media bias. Come on, Democrats, fix it. 
All right, there is no reason why the Telecommunications Act of 1996 should still be the law of the land or that the, the, um, the uh, dismantling of the Fairness Doctrine back under Reagan should still exist. We need fairness and balance in media. We need some limitations on how many stations big corporations can own. Break up these monopolies. Require fairness and balance. I mean, you know, and, and in lieu of that, I mean, that's going to take federal action. In lieu of that, state Democratic parties could start helping local community groups um, purchase radio signals and, and get, those, uh, get those alternative stations up and running. No reason that couldn't happen. Anyway, that's my, uh, that's my take on the Democratic Party, both here in Iowa and implicitly all around the country, especially when it comes to rural communities, working class communities, and increasingly, you know, communities of color, which are drifting away from the party. All right. So, hey, got to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about immigration on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to all of our sponsors and partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. All right, so uh, I want to talk immigration with you folks, and this is from an acquaintance uh, and a former Republican legislative staffer who wrote, quote, there is a very real possibility that a civil war will break out between Texas Governor Greg Abbott, other Republican governors who support him, and the federal government led by President Biden. Uh, the issue is who controls the U.S. border. Uh, last week, the Trump-appointed Supreme Court concluded that border regulation is the responsibility of the federal government. Uh, Governor Abbott refused to accept this decision and is using Texas National Guard and state police to prevent U.S. border agents from policing and controlling the border in Texas. Governor Abbott has called this Operation Lone Star. Okay, that's, uh, that's interesting information. Uh, this uh, fellow now lives in Texas, so it's a 
a little more frontline information. But my, you know, my point is, uh, okay, to be clear, Abbott is using the Texas National Guard for a purpose it was never intended. And, you know, it's causing a heck of a lot of hardship and even death. There are, there are now, as, we, as the count is now, there's 10 Texas National Guard members who have died, and four of them from suicide. I was, uh, I was curious about that. I'm disturbed about that. And I found an article in the Army Times. Again, the Army Times is, you know, not, you know, not inclined, inclined to put a, you know, a, a, a peace perspective on anything. Um, this is pretty hard. This is pretty straightforward. Um, Private First Class Joshua Cortez was preparing to accept a lifetime job with one of the nation's biggest health insurance companies in late October. But the Texas National Guard had other ideas. Cortez was one of the soldiers tapped to go on state active duty orders with no idea how long the mission would last. And he says, quote, I've been waiting for this job and I'm on my way to getting hired. Uh, that, that, he wrote that in, um, in a request for a hardship release from the mission. He said, quote, I missed my first opportunity in September when I had to go on the flood mission in Louisiana. I cannot miss this opportunity because it is my last chance for this lifetime job. Cortez's request was denied. And 36 hours later, he drove to a parking lot in northwest San Antonio and shot himself in the head. Uh, again, uh, there have been other suicides. It's uh, deeply disturbing what's going on. And some of the people that are being sent to do the work are real disturbed by it. And, uh, you know, critics of the mission have been saying that this, this, this rapid expansion is motivated by politics. It's not by real need. It's not actually accomplishing anything. And it's motivated by politics. I'm pretty sure that, uh, that it's not hard to, to, to see why. <laughs> but yet now there are about, about 10,000 uh, Texas National Guard and other military personnel operating in, quote, Operation Lone Star. So, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a huge force. So, uh, meanwhile, after the, uh, you know, the, the Texas legislature insisted on budget cuts, so the Texas National Guard had to respond to that as well. And what did they do? What did they cut? They massively slashed tuition assistance to Guard members. So that, le that left many troops stranded without the reimbursement payments they'd been counting on for the fall semester, uh, which, of course, is already underway. <laughs> you know, okay, I'm going to go back to the New York Times. I, you know, I, I, I disagree with the New York Times a lot, um, but sometimes they nail it. So uh, this, is a, this is quoting Bernie Sanders. Quote, there is a reason why Wall Street and all of corporate America likes immigration reforms. Reform, and it is not in my view that they're staying up nights worrying about undocumented workers. Sanders said, that was back in 2015. He said, quote, what I think they are interested in is seeing a process by which we can bring low-wage labor of all levels into this country to depress wages for Americans, and I strongly disagree with that. Okay, that's not what you hear coming from the Democratic Party anymore. Um, and Barack Obama actually, you know, kind of... Uh, had a nuanced version of the same perspective um, in his uh, acceptance speech in 2008. This is, again, seven years before what I my quote from Bernie Sanders. Obama said, quote, passions may fly on immigration, but I don't know anyone who benefits when a mother is separated from her infant child or an employer undercuts American wages by hiring illegal workers. 
So, but, you know, by the year 2020, as the New York Times points out, top Democrats were instead calling for the decriminalization of the border. On Capitol Hill, Democrats spoke more positively about immigration than any party held, than any party had ever done so in the country's history. So, um, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, some of what Republicans are asking for now, Democrats used to ask for, you know. Uh, again, a big part of the problem is the, the rhetoric has gotten so hateful. I mean, to call people trying to find asylum in this country uh, as part of an invasion or to kind of imply that most of them are bad people, drug dealers, cantaloupes, or calves the size of cantaloupes, that's just not helpful at all. But um, the Democratic Party seems to have um, moved to a position that is uh, not only, you know, policy-wise, not really manageable, but but uh, politically, uh, you know, politically hard. It's it's not gonna it's not flying with people. So I, I, I want to back up for a second. I, I got two things I say, and both are going to be controversial. So bear with me. Take your house. I mean, your house has I don't know how many people live in your house, but um, we have two here. And we could probably have a couple more if we needed to, uh, maybe four, maybe six if we really needed to. I don't know. But, you know, at some point, that, that house is full. We don't have any more capacity. We don't have any more resources. You know, and at some point, too, you, I mean, the same can be said about one city. I mean, cities tend to get around that by, by urban sprawling or doing infill. But at some point, you know, you're big enough whereby if you get any bigger, you're, gonna, you're not going to be manageable. Um, same can be true of states and countries and course the planet so yeah the bottom line is there are limits to growth and there are limits to the capacity of which our resources can feed and house and employ and and clothe uh, people so you know it's to me it's not unreasonable to say that we have borders um, call them boundaries or limits if you like uh, and that and that there something has to be done to manage those borders because otherwise you have no capacity to you know to be able to to to, uh, to care for the people who are going to come in. And we're seeing that in cities like New York and other places where Abbott and other ridiculous governors are sending busloads of immigrants. So, yeah, that's reasonable. There, you know, an entirely open border, which I know the very libertarian Cato Institute wants and people on the far left want, is not workable, in my opinion. So the other, the, other, the other controversial thing I want to say, and it really shouldn't be controversial, is that um, a big part of why people emigrate to this country from Latin America is because of U.S. policy. I mean, we have been propping up you know, authoritarian regimes for decades, for, gosh, close to 80, 80 years or more. Um, there's a really good book I recommend that I read years ago that I haven't read since. I haven't read it since the early 80s, but it stuck with me. It's called Bitter Fruit. It's about Guatemala. And it's about the U.S., um, well, it's about the um, banana industry in the U.S. being unhappy with, um, with uh, the uh, efforts to, the, the nationalization of some agricultural interests that was pushing back against the banana companies, United Fruit it was called, but their, their ability to make a big profit. And so, well, they, they ended up getting the um, CIA involved. And the CIA orchestrates a coup that overthrows the duly elected government uh, back in 1954. And um, this happens all over, the, all over Central America, happens in South America. And in, it's part of why people are coming here. I mean, look at El Salvador. You know, 30,000 people killed in the Civil War uh, in a small country, tiny country. 
you know, and I know right now the U.S. is um, you, the, the U.S. Agency for International Development and the State Department combined have allocated $272 million of humanitarian aid to vulnerable populations in Central America and Mexico. Put that in perspective. Between 1980 and 1992, the U.S. gave $6 billion just to El Salvador to, quote, fight communism. And again, that led to 30,000 deaths, um, immense poverty. And, uh, you know, so, so we, have to, we have to ask, why, why, why are so many people coming here? I mean, the climate is great down there. It's beautiful, warm. Um, I mean, I, I, visited, uh, I visited southern Mexico once with my daughter when she was in school down there. And it's a it's a beautiful area. Uh, it it may ha- it may struggle with uh, with rainfall sometimes, uh, and you know less than ideal soil health. But you know you should be able to make a living in that part of the world. And uh, a lot of the reason why people can't is because of our policies. We need to fess up. We need to admit that um, that what's driving people here is in part uh, based on our our insistence on subsidize on 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 backing up dictators or in the case of El, uh, the case of Guatemala blatantly overthrowing a duly elected government because we wanted to protect the banana industry the US banana industry so you know okay so we have to fess up to that reality again that doesn't mean that we are capable of taking everybody into the US who wants to come here from Latin America and anywhere else i mean there are just um limits to what one can accomplish uh, and, you know, and, and in terms of how many people one can accept without, uh, without depleting resources, without, without you know, back to Bernie Sanders' perspective, without um, endangering, you know, without um, creating a possibility of low-wage jobs. Okay, so back to what's happening on the southern border right now. Uh, and again, part of what's happening on the southern border is a big element of discussion in Washington, we have the U.S. Um, U.S. Senate uh, very close to a good agreement. Well, not, not not an ideal agreement, but a something something resembling progress moving forward from this uh, logjam. And of course, along comes Donald Trump and says, "Nah, don't do that." And uh, you know, it, clearly, it, it's the motivation is political. Let's keep this issue volatile so that Republicans can bludgeon Democrats with it uh, going into the fall election. But I, going back to the southern border itself, again, where 10,000 Texas law enforcement and National Guard members are deployed and where we've seen some, um, some horrible uh, uh, outcomes among Texas National Guard members. You've got Texas Governor Greg Abbott now saying that um, the Constitution gives him the right to secure the U.S. border with Mexico. Again, Historically, it's been the federal government's responsibility to secure the border, whether it's the Canadian border, the Mexican border, the Atlantic coast, the, uh, the, the Pacific coast. That's um, always a federal responsibility. Um, Abbott says no. And this is, of course, because the Supreme Court, <laughs> the Supreme Court that, that Trump appointed, basically, uh, voted, a, you know, ruled against him and against those who felt that he had a right to um, you know, lace the uh, the border in Texas with barbed wire. So uh, now, of course, the federal government says, "No, you're wrong," and uh, it's likely that there will be a um, conflict over this. Um, you know, again, and, and Abbott and others they keep using the word invasion, 
which uh, is horribly inaccurate and and very um, it, I mean it, it incites some some pretty uh, angry responses from people. They hear that and they, they yeah we're being invaded. It's time to fight back and um, you know Operation uh, Lone Star. <laughs> Uh, oh, and and the and the uh, I guess Abbott has commissioned truckers. I, I'm just learning about this. I need to need to dig into it a bit more. But truckers have been organized to help secure the border. I think they're they're calling themselves God's Army. Um, yeah, we'll we'll have more about that going forward. But um, you know, so Abbott has accused Biden of being quote a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats like cartels smuggling millions of illegal immigrants across the border. Again, we, we have to push back against this. This is horrible language. It's horribly inaccurate. Sure, there may be somebody pushing drugs through the border. You know, and, and yeah, they're illegal, but wh- why are they coming here? What, 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 it, it, you know, yeah, I, I don't doubt that there are some who come here because they, they can make a heck of a better living here than they can in their country. But let's be honest. A lot of what's happening is because of what we did to prop up authoritarian regimes, uh, what we did to support, in the case of El Salvador, death squads that um, that executed, you know, they killed thirty thousand people. So, um, yeah, there is a solution to the border crisis. I think it's. Uh, I think going back to what Bernie Sanders and even Obama said years ago is probably a good starting point. Uh, you know. And maybe even looking at public opinion. I mean, public opinion isn't always right. And again, public opinion can be skewed by by uh, by uh, vitriolic rhetoric from the left or the right. And when the right is calling it invasion, and when the right focuses on immigrants as you know drug smuggling reps from cartels, yeah, then we've got problems. Uh, problems in terms of understanding what's really going on. I just hope that uh, it, again, the one big piece missing from this conversation in the media, uh, for the most part, is the complicity of the, of the U.S. In, 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 in creating this problem through propping up authoritarian regimes. I hope we see more conversation about that. Anyway, hey, i got to run to a short break. Again, this is Ed Fallon with you on the Fallon Forum. Uh, back in just a minute with more conversation, we're going to be talking about mostly about climate and environmental stuff that's going on. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to all of our partners and sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, yeah, I want to I want to talk a lot about climate, environmental stuff here, um, including uh, the cutting of a 175-year-old bur oak tree. Let me just say, I'm glad the guy's going to do some jail time. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I don't normally get happy when somebody does jail time, but um, yeah, I will save that story for later because I want to start off by talking about about taxing the rich. Now, you know, we've you've probably heard people like me forever has been talking about the importance of an equitable tax system, about the importance of uh, reestablishing a tax system that, that puts the, uh, a decent, you know, a fair burden on the wealthy. Well, right now, the uh, clamor to tax the rich is coming from the rich, which um. Well, honestly, kind of surprised me. But apparently 250 billionaires and millionaires, but millionaires are just billionaire wannabes, right? They're now demanding, demanding that the political elite, meaning themselves, um, <laughs> introduce wealth taxes to help pay for better public services around the world. Uh, quote from that, the, they had an open letter to world leaders. This was delivered at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Quote, our request is simple. We ask you to tax us, the very richest in society. This will not fundamentally alter our standard of living, nor deprive our children, nor harm our nation's economic growth, but it will turn extreme and unproductive private wealth into an investment for our common democratic future. Well, yippee. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it isn't often that I say, yay, rich people. But, yeah, okay, that's great. You know, and, and that, was, that was 250 people. Beyond that, there were 2,300 of the richest 5% of the world were polled. I'm not sure who the poll was by. But it was found that 58% of those polled out of this 2,300 people, 58% supported a 2% wealth tax on those who earn more than $10 million a year. And uh, another 54% thought that extreme wealth was a threat to, to democracy. So by that, and a majority of millionaires and billionaires understand that their accumulation of excessive wealth is a problem. This is encouraging. Now, I'm sure there are, there are wealthy people out there. Um, you know, David Koch or Charles Koch, whichever one's still alive. That one comes to mind. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was not a signatory on that letter. Uh, there's some Kelsey Warren, another really, really rich guy, the guy behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. I'm pretty sure he didn't sign that letter. But um, it's encouraging to see that the ultra-rich are, um, are making this proposal. But, of course, the, and, and they're, they're, their eyes are open on this as well. There'll probably be no, no um, political will in Congress, especially on the Republican side, to do what they're asking. You know... You know, usually when a rich person comes to a politician and says, hey, I'd like you to do this, they take it seriously. But I, I have a hard time seeing 
Congress take these rich people seriously on this particular proposal. But anyway, it's good. It's it's good. It's good strong language. It's um it's uh it's it's leverage to move forward on something that a lot of us have been talking about forever. But you know, get this: if if Congress does nothing uh, in terms of responding to this proposed this this demanded tax on wealth, the rich could do it themselves. I mean, there's no reason these 250 people or the 58% of the 2,300 surveyed, no reason they couldn't come forward and say, look, we're just going to write an extra big check to the government this year. Or even we're going to be more targeted about it and, and give tens of millions to, you know, to programs and initiatives we believe in. No reason they couldn't do that. We'll see if they do. All right, on to uh, greener and wetter things, um, specifically Greenland. I talk about Greenland once in a while in this program, and every time it's... Um, it's worse. Although in this, this particular conversation, there's an interesting caveat that I want to get into about how capitalism is intervening. So, uh, <laughs> so the Greenland ice cap is losing an average of 30 million tons of ice an hour. Every hour, 30 million tons of ice. And that's um, 20% more than was previously thought to be lost. Again, I'm not surprised. My one complaint about climate scientists, they've been right on everything that's going to happen, except they've been wrong on the timeline. Everything is happening faster. And so right now, this is impacting what we like to call the Gulf Stream, but what more scientifically astute people call the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC. But I'm going to keep calling it the Gulf Stream because I'm, low, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, old school and and, not, and I'm not scientifically oriented. Anyway, it's already slowing down because when you add water, when you add fresh water to the mix, it dilutes the, the, the salt in the ocean and it slows things down. And it is going to collapse. There is no doubt about it. It is going to collapse. And when that happens, consequences for humanity are, 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 are severe, to put it mildly. And some of those include... The forecast for catastrophic monsoons in the in the Pacific nations, um, East Pacific nations, um, flooding as well. Uh, it also forecasts um, increased drought and heat in North America. And uh, you know, again, I'm I'm very well connected to my my ancestry in Ireland. I talked about that a lot on this program. And I think about what Ireland. What's the forecast for Ireland when the uh, Gulf Stream stops running? When it collapses? Well. Uh, you know, Ireland is the same latitude as Hudson Bay, <laughs> okay, where there are polar bears, you know. There are no polar bears in Ireland. There are palm trees, in fact. And a nasty winter day is usually in the 30s, maybe a little bit of snow. But when, and, and right now, you know, again, Ireland is about 40 degrees warmer in January than Hudson Bay, Labrador, those places. But when this collapses, you know, I mean, Ireland is warmer because of the Gulf Stream. When there's no Gulf Stream, what happens? Well, it's not hard to project that the temperatures will be 40 degrees colder in January than they are currently. We'll see. Again, it's not spe- it won't be speculative for long. It'll be, it's going to play out. We're going to know. So, um, again, since 1985, um, we've seen about a trillion tons of ice lost in Greenland. And uh, a recent study, again, suggested that Gulf Stream collapse could happen as soon as next year. Again, my big complaint about climate scientists, 
they've been right on everything except timeline. So now if they're saying it's going to happen in 2025, okay, it might even happen this year. But it is, it is, it is, it is happening. The, the slowdown is significant. The collapse is inevitable. And again, the impacts about, uh, uh, from that are huge. So, um, again, not only, uh, I mean, you're looking at it in a, almost a, you know, when, when at some point there's going to be a, a sea level rise of three to six feet. Yeah, that's, 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 that's putting a lot of coastal communities underwater. But again, as I mentioned, fear not capitalism. I, I won't say it's coming to the rescue, but it's finding an opportunity in this. So, yeah, capitalism, I, you know, making lemonade out of lemons, or in this case, luxury ice cubes out of melting Greenland glaciers. So here's what's happening. There's a guy named um, Malik Rasmussen. I don't know what nationality he is. Maybe he is Greenlandish. But he, is, um, he founded a company called Arctic Ice, and uh, he ships that ice from Greenland to the United Arab Emirates to sell to exclusive bars. So, you know, so you can have a cocktail on the top of a Dubai skyscraper, that, and that probably seems decadent enough. But add to that a uh, ice cube from a glacier, from a fjord in Greenland, and um, yeah, that's the, I guess that's the ultimate international thrill, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know how to I don't know how to spell decadence and obscene, obscene over the top, you know, wealth any more profoundly than that. That's just it just boggles my mind that uh, I, again I guess I shouldn't fault this guy for capitalizing on it, but that, that there's a market for this sort of thing that there that there are people willing to buy ice cubes from uh, a glacier that's melting in Greenland. Again, when all these glaciers melt, it's, it's catastrophic for the world. But now what, well, you know, as long as the party's still going, folks, we're going to have these Greenland ice cubes in our daiquiris. All right. So <laughs> the, um, all right, I want to talk about court challenges relevant to climate change as well. Um, you know, we've seen record uh, domestic oil and gas production in the U.S., and, of course, lots of promises made by fossil fuel companies that are not kept. Uh, and despite that, um, we are seeing some very significant victories in the, uh, in the, on the legal front. Uh, there was a groundbreaking, groundbreaking ruling in Montana this past year uh, that, um, if it stands, depending how the appeal goes, if it stands, it would force Montana to change a lot of its environmental policies to address climate concerns. And again, most of these lawsuits, not all, most of them are being brought by young people. So, um, yeah, last year there were, uh, and, and, it's, and, and they're winning too, last year there were um, about two dozen cases that uh, involved wins, uh, you know, in states and, and cities around the world, around the, around the state, around the U.S., against fossil fuel companies for allegedly deceiving the public about the dangers of global warming. Um, and up this coming this coming year in Hawaii, uh, in June, there's a, uh, a youth-led lawsuit on climate that a judge is prepared to hear. Uh, it's uh, it's this one focuses on the state's transportation infrastructure, indicating that the uh, state authority failed to cooperate with uh, with other state regulators and federal regulators to slash uh, carbon dioxide pollution. So. Um, 
And just last month in December, the uh, Our Children's Trust, which has been behind a significant number of lawsuits, including uh, Juliana versus the uh, federal government, and um, they, they're bringing they're, they're bringing a bunch of other lawsuits. And this um, this one there's one based on in California. There's also lawsuits pending in Florida, Utah, Virginia. And you know it's not just a uh, it's not just Republicans who oppose these kind of legal lawsuits. It's certainly, certainly the four fossil fuel companies do. But earlier this month, um, the Biden administration filed a motion to dismiss uh, at least one of these youth-led lawsuits against the federal government. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and again, again, it's not just young people. I, I, I mentioned before the, uh, the five valve turners. We've had one of them on this program, in fact. The valve turners were um, activists. You know, in middle age, in their middle of life, some of them even a little bit older, who, uh, in a coordinated way, um, turned off the uh, the uh, shut down the oil flowing through the Keystone pipeline. Uh, it was significant, and one of them, uh, well, one of them had a had a victorious day in court, using the uh, justification defense that because climate is an emergency, because it is causing Irre- you, know, you know, incredible harm. You know, it, it has to be. It has to be. It has to be. Um, has to be stopped. And it, we're 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 justified in bringing this to the court. Now, I have I of course have my own day in court on that. Uh, Kathy and I and three others. Um, well, we uh, we decided a little drama was in order. We went to a Trump fundraiser here in Des- in Des Moines a few years back. And I was surprised at how hard we had to work to get arrested. I mean, they really, the law enforcement was very kind to us. <laughs> and, and, and again, it helps to be white and middle class in Iowa, you know. Uh, they treat you better than if you're a Native American in Standing Rock or an African American in the central city of, um, of a larger, larger region. But um, we got, you know, treated pretty well, and we were begged, we were begged to stop our protest. But in the end... They arrested us, and we, we wanted we, we wanted to see what happened when we took this case to court, and we we made that justification argument. We were very well prepared. We thought we had a good case. Um, we didn't succeed, but at least we added to statutory, you know, law the, that there was a case that brought up justification, and here's how it went. So, in the future, if and when, and probably when, other such cases are brought before the uh, courts here in Iowa, or maybe even elsewhere, uh, you know, reference to those, those conversations and rulings will be, will be relevant. Anyway, um, one more thing I want to say. Biden, a good thing about Biden, he, uh, he has uh, decided that the world's largest exporter of liquid, liquefied natural gas, that would be the U.S., um, must put a, we're putting a, putting a, a, putting a limit on it. Right now there's um, no more exporting of natural gas. We'll see how that goes, but good for Biden for doing that. In terms of my what I mentioned earlier, um, yeah, there's a guy up here in northwest Iowa who decided that it was his right to cut down whatever trees he wanted because he needed them to survive. This 41-year-old guy um, named Jason Ferguson, he, he went so he cut down 100 trees, and one of them was a 175-year-old Burr oak that was six feet across. Now, who in their right mind wants to cut through a six feet across, you know, oak tree? I mean, there's something wrong with this guy. And then he, he's got this attorney who's arguing that he has a right to take those down 
because he needed the wood for shelter and heat. Oh, come on. I, you know, I don't say this often, but I hope this guy does some jail time. That's just, uh, that is just horrible. Anyway, hey, got to take a short break. When we come back, speaking to trees, Kathy and I are going to discuss fruit trees in cities and how Philadelphia is leading the way. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, Kathy Burns is with me, and we are talking about fruit trees. Yeah, and this is because we've discussed with uh, some folks at the city of Des Moines to encourage them to plant more fruit trees. And what's the number one thing that we hear first when we talk about, let's plant more fruit trees in the city? They're messy. They're messy. They drop fruit. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Not as much fruit will drop if people are picking and eating. But but I ran into an article about how a group in Philadelphia, it's actually a Philadelphia project called uh, Philadelphia Orchard Project. They are embracing the idea of planting fruit trees and nut-bearing trees in the city, especially in areas where there is uh, some low income, less access to fresh foods, and it has been hugely received and very successful. So we want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I don't know how, what it's like in other folks' uh, communities, but um, as far as I know, there's only one public orchard in Des Moines, and it's really small. It's only what about ten trees. It's really old. The trees are dying. It's not tended well. And the uh, the city forest didn't even know it existed. <laughs> so and There's a lot to keep track of, but uh, this project started in 2007, which means they started the at the right time. Yes, yeah. they started at the right time to plant trees. It's a, When's the best time to plant trees? Five years ago. Well, at least. <laughs> and their mission is to just have more orchards, and they are working with uh, partners and volunteers to get this going. And uh, it's, it's just a, been a great benefit for the city. They want to help establish, well, get this, permanent parts of the city as part of the agricultural seed. Permanently in the city, not just 
for a while let people use a spot to grow food and then take it away for a mm. parking garage or something. And, you know, in, in fairness, Des Moines is talking about that, but gosh, it's still going slow. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Well, the, yeah. the parts that impress me about this program is that it weaves in with their longer vision of Philadelphia as a city. Those core values include education and learning. And in, in this uh, uh, Orchard Project, it's certainly about helping people and communities learn about food production as they see it, you know, being impl- implemented in their own communities. Uh, grown-ups and kids alike can learn a lot about uh, how to grow and harvest and use food. Justice is a key component of this. Uh, surely food security is something that we are all eventually going to face if we don't already, and mm-hmm. folks who are facing it right now deserve the same, you know, access to fresh food as anyone else. That idea of permanence that I mentioned, regeneration, uh, an interesting part of it is they're planting the young trees and planted in between the rows of the trees or shrubs, whichever they are, are um, other edible plants like broccoli and beans and things Mm. that are also culturally significant to the communities Mm. that they're planting in. And as the trees develop, and uh, get the shade over them, then those spaces will just be planted with uh, shade-proof pollinators. Mm. So there's a real idea about regenerative ag here, and also beauty is part of their vision for the city, which I think Des Moines and other cities are missing the boat on. People want to come to live in a city where these values are expressed mm. in many of the projects, and this is a great one. Wow, that, that's that Philadelphia, who knew? Well, I, yeah. I guess I need to go back. I've only <laughs> so, visited. Uh, once or twice in my life, and need, so, need to get back there. So, and uh, where, where does where did the idea come from originally? Do you, do you know? I I didn't yeah. see in the article huh, that but, I was. But it goes reading. back. It goes back. Away, goes so. back to two thousand seven. So how many trees are we talking about? Have they actually planted? Uh, it sounds like over the past decade, they've got twenty five thousand trees planted, and. Uh, Forty percent of those trees oh. have been food producing. Okay, so that's uh, that's a lot of a lot of. So that's, that's a big trees. percentage, big right. percentage. Yeah, right. Any indication as to how much of it's getting used? And... Yeah, there's a, there's a great example of the outcome. Uh, a Marissa Wilson, who is with the Philadelphia Parks and Rec, said that we really did hear from residents that food bearing trees are important. So the, it's not just somebody had the idea to plant trees, but they have evidence that the people in those communities are taking advantage of it and uh, the, they're they're just also getting the benefits of uh, less heat island effect oh, yeah, sure. from yeah. the, the shady areas. It sounds like the, right. the low-income communities also had many fewer trees than other parts of the city. And mm. so there's a benefit, less AC needed in those um, areas now too. Mm. So I, I'm just really excited about this project. And there's a, there's another similar effort that's been going on for quite a while in a city in Vermont. Burlington, right? Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, showing northern climates are even friendly to that initiative. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds like a, a, a destination sometime. Mm. Yeah, we need to visit. You know, um, and, and since we often drive to... Visit my family. It would be on the way. Let's pop in. <laughs> Let's pop in. Philly, here we come. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for that information. Hey, thanks to our production team, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. 
Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold, Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio. But I am a big old tree stuck in the ground is me if i had just one wish i'd like to dance like this i do a little bump i do a little twist i do a little jump and wiggle just like this i do the funky chicken silly yes i know and then i pack my chunk and hit the road